Hello and welcome back to College Savings Insights. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Katherine Flynn of SavingForCollege.com and I'm very excited about our guest today. She is Melinda Lewis, Assistant Director of the Assets, Education, and Inclusion Department of the University of Kansas. She's also the co-author of the recent study, Student Loan Debt, Can Parental College Savings Help? Hi, Melinda. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining me. Hello. Thank you for having me. Well, I'll just start by saying that my colleagues and I really enjoyed your paper. Um, it makes a very convincing case for families to start saving for college if they haven't already. Good. Well, you know, it sounds at first blush perhaps um, fairly obvious, right? Which is one of the critiques sometimes leveled at academics, um, that the questions that we're considering aren't necessarily those that are paramount uh, to public discourse. Because you would think, you would hope, that the more money you have saved for college, the less you would have to borrow. But it's really one of the first studies to investigate that with any rigor. Um, and the reason that there was some doubt is that um, there are often differences between students whose families have savings for them and students who don't and so such that we didn't know if those types of students were so different that the fact that one's parents had savings just changed behavior in other ways unrelated to student debt for example you know would it mean that students didn't have to work when they were in school when they might otherwise have or that they would just go to more expensive of institutions or that they weren't the students who would borrow in the first place and so even if their parents didn't have savings for them, they would have some other types of financial resources available. Um, so this study that really, you know, with some considerable statistical rigor, looked at um, comparable students and said other things being held equal, those who have savings are not only less likely to have to borrow, but when they do borrow, they borrow less. Um, we hope will really highlight uh, the potential for the United States to address some of our student debt concerns by encouraging parental savings, and then also to uh, illuminate some of the conversation about how we might do that. You know, if we have now um, added some evidence to this point that parental savings is an important strategy for reducing the incidence and the amount of student debt, then we can hopefully turn our full attention to well, then how do we help parents to save um, and understand that that saving is not only important as a cue to children that college is in your future and you need to start preparing for it, that we certainly think savings can be, but also a really tangible strategy for reducing the need of those students to borrow once they get to school. Mm -hmm. And that's that's so interesting. Um that you have taken all these different factors into the study. Um, let's talk tuition. What are some ways that you found tuition costs can, can affect college enrollment decisions? Yeah, so understanding tuition costs is complicated. Um, it, you know, it, it is hard oftentimes for families to decode the difference between sticker prices and net cost, and certainly hard to compare apples to apples when there's so much that is unknown about the potential return on a given degree, or you know, really, you know, I'm paying X amount of dollars at this institution versus a little less over here, but how do I know what I'm getting? So 
a, a general caveat that um, college tuition prices are not the same as the price for a pair of blue jeans or uh, you know a um, even a, a, a car that we ha- tend to have a lot more information to be able to facilitate those kinds of comparisons uh, and then guide our decision making. But um, there has been a lot of research that has found that rising college costs have a negative effect on college enrollment decisions, particularly for those who might be at the margins um, of deciding whether or not college is really affordable for them or um, for whom cost is a particularly salient determinant of where I go and when I go. So just a little bit of of data here. And most of this has really not been analysis that we've done at AADI, um, but folks who focus on the factors that determine college choice. Um, So there's a a fairly significant body of evidence around this. Uh, So for example, some researchers found that a $150 increase in net cost. So that's different than um, the sticker price of tuition because it um, factors in um, the availability of different kinds of discounts um, that an institution might make available. You know, not everybody pays the same price even to go Mm -hmm. to the same school. So we're talking net cost here. A $150 increase in net cost results in about a one and a half percentage point reduction in enrollment among low-income students. Um, in again, there are elements of the um, decision-making process around college attendance that are more complex than just the yes or no, I go or I don't. Uh, and we see effects there as well. Um, price contributes to what's known as undermatching. Um, so that's where students select institutions that are below their academic qualification for reasons primarily based on price. So I could get into an institution that might be my top choice and best situated to help me pursue the career that I want to pursue. But I decide not to go to that institution just because I'm worried that I can't afford it. Uh, And um, the uh, tuition pricing and the lack of availability of alternatives to student loan debt um, can also lead to students pursuing different types of degrees, those with shorter paths to career, for example, um, or those that have the potential to be more lucrative. So there's um, a growing concern about Mm -hmm. the United States' ability to produce enough graduates in industries or sectors like education, social work and human services, public service, really essential careers uh, and occupations, but that may not pay as much, certainly initially, uh, because the more I spent to pay for my degree, the more adverse I'm going to be to um, accepting a job that may make it hard for me to pay back the loans that I most likely had to take out to finance it. Right. Um, So do you think there's any relationship between current tuition prices and the amount of state funding that's going toward colleges? (laughs) 
Absolutely. And I'm really <laughs> glad you raised that because I think so many parents and students and kind of casual observers even look at college tuition and say, what in the world, right? Uh, you know, other prices are not going up that dramatically. Uh, tuition prices have even outpaced growth in other really inflated sectors like in healthcare and in energy costs, kind of what is it about college tuition? A lot of the blame is placed quickly on educational institutions themselves. And we at ADI and a lot of folks who work in this field certainly would not say that there aren't things that institutions can do to control costs. You know, we've all seen the, um, you know, top of the line dorm that somebody built some because they were trying to compete with another institution to attract students, and, and that's real. But what we're primarily seeing in this, there's quite a bit of analysis. I'll share a couple of data points that I think will be um, interesting to folks. What we're primarily seeing is not so much a cost increase in higher education, but a cost shift. Uh, so we can't see the increases in tuition as happening in a vacuum um, or as just being this, like, absolute increase in um, price. Um, but what we're really seeing is a lot of decreases in state funding of colleges and universities that then shift the responsibility for paying for college to students and their families. So a little bit of data on this. Um, so nationwide, states in the aggregate, there are certainly outliers. There are those that have disinvested more dramatically from higher education than what I'm going to share and those that are still financing higher education to a greater degree. But nationwide, states spent 28% less on higher education in 2013 than in 2008 in real wow. dollars. So, um, you know, they cut their budgets in the recession and now well into recovery, that money is not coming back, which means then that we're seeing a shifting um, of a universities or a community colleges budget um, from the percentage that depended on public support to that that comes from private sources. So a little bit of context there. So in 1980, uh, student tuition accounted for about 20% of major universities' operating funds. Um, you know, the rest came from um, the federal government state governments, uh, endowments, other sources. 20% came from tuition. By 2006, prior to those cuts in state funding that I just referenced, that share had more than doubled to 43%. Now at many institutions, um, tuition prices, that is, those of course are paid predominantly by students and those who are helping students finance their educations make up more than half of a university's so yes, costs have gone up um, in some ways that are likely avoidable on the part of institutions, in some ways that aren't. The, the cost of healthcare for faculty and other university staff has gone up. Um, you know, energy costs have gone up for institutions the same way they are for our own home bills. So some of those costs are unavoidable. Um, but even more than an actual increase in costs, there is a different equation now um, for who is expected to pay for higher education. Um, it's really framed as being a private good, even though we know that we as a society benefit tremendously um, from an increase in educational attainment of our population. Um, and when we treat education as something that families are expected to pay for, um, then they are 
ever increasingly uh, having to confront um, really high tuition prices. And now in the past, it seems that um, students were able to rely more on financial aid. And so can you talk about the accessibility of financial aid today compared to maybe previous years and the different types of aid that are available? Yeah, it's another really good point. So, you know, if decoding uh, college cost is complex because there are differences in um, the quality of what you're buying institution to institution, it's also complex because um, there is such a tremendous difference between those sticker prices and the actual net cost. You know, I'm, I'm confronted with um, a bill, a theoretical bill from a university, and then find out that I'm going to be able to draw down these different sources of aid. That's going to feel very different to me. Uh, as a prospective student um, than if I have a lower tuition scenario, um, but with relatively little aid. Um, and here there are a couple of factors that are um, kind of reshaping the financing for students and families. First is the fact that um, financial aid just has not kept pace with those increases in cost, again, that are primarily driven by the cost shift. Uh, so a lot of our financial aid policies are still essentially assuming that tuition accounts for a fifth or so of um, a university's or you know, institution's operating budget. Um, and now that that has changed, and in many cases, um, those costs are more like you know, 50, 60 percent of the institution's operating costs, there's not enough financial aid to help students and families meet that share uh, of the overall expense. So there's a, been a decrease uh, in purchasing power of financial aid that really hits families in their pocketbooks. Uh, you know, I, I get told the good news that you're going to get this aid package, um, but then when I compare that package to what I'm expected to pay, it doesn't compare very favorably. And then there's a change in the composition of aid. Um, and this is, again, related to um, the financing shifts in higher education. So as institutions know that more of their operating money has to come from tuition, from students and families, they are regrettably, but I think fairly understandably, drawn to students who are going to be able to pay those costs. Um, which has influenced decision-making, including around enrollment, as well as the um, ex you know, extending aid packages to students um, that are based on criteria other than just, is this qualified student financially in need of our assistance? Um, so there's been a shift, another shift, um, to um, a greater reliance on merit aid uh, and less availability of need-based aid um, as, as in addition to the decrease in overall purchasing power. A lot of times when we talk with folks about an increase in merit aid, that sounds good, right? I mean, Americans generally agree that individual merit should be rewarded. People who work harder and have more talent should, should do better. Uh, and we want policy paths that align with those values. However, in this case of the financial aid shift away from need-based and toward merit-based aid, there's a lot of evidence that these policies don't really conform as well as we would hope or expect with this idea that, you know, effort and ability are rewarded. Um, and then in large part, that's because students' ability to perform well um, in the tests that are used to determine eligibility 
you for this merit aid. And I mean, they're not just standardized tests, although that's a part of it, but the, the um, judgment, the assessment of is this a student of merit or not, that that ability is strongly influenced by the advantages that some students have accrued throughout their schooling. So things like, you know, uh, completion of extracurricular activities. Well, students who go to the uh, better high schools uh, are better to those kinds of opportunities. Students who don't need to work um, when they're in high school are better able to accumulate a long list of volunteer activities and different types of extracurriculars. Students whose high schools have more guidance counselors and certainly parents across the country have watched as public school budgets have resulted in the elimination of a lot of those quote extras, including at good kind of quote unquote middle class schools um, that just don't don't provide um, those types of resources anymore. That matters in high school, but it particularly matters then when students are going to compete for merit aid. Um, so whereas need-based aid is not just for those students who are you know, really low income, living in poverty, but also for a lot of um, families whose um, lack of economic advantages make it difficult for them to be able to contribute heavily to their child's education. Merit aid tends to go disproportionately um, to those who are financially um, more advantaged. So a little bit of, of data on this too. Uh, so between 1982 and 2000, um, and that's a, a rather older statistic, um, but there hasn't been a lot of new research around this shift um, but from um, need-based to merit-based aid, in part because the shift has happened so completely at this point. Um, but the spending on need-based scholarships for undergraduates increased by about 7% a year during that almost two-decade period. But spending on merit programs increased at almost double, about 14% annually. So what that's resulted then is a shift um, that the proportion of state grants awarded based on merit rose from about 22% during that period. Again, they're not increasing their total amount of aid. In most cases, that is declining. It certainly is not increasing um, enough to keep pace with increases in tuition prices. Uh, and who's getting that assistance shifts a lot. Um, you know, again, this um, also relates to how institutions are deciding um, how much aid they're going to give and to whom as a way to craft their incoming class um, that we can talk about a little bit more in a minute. But um, you know, I think it's just really important for folks to understand that saying that we um, are concerned about the shift toward merit aid as um, the primary non loan assistance that's available to some students is not because we don't think that merit matters. It's because the way in which merit aid is assessed um, oftentimes fails to adequately reward or equitably assist those students who certainly have to have merit. You don't get into a higher educational institution without having demonstrated some academic ability and exerted some effort on the path. Um, but it, instead, with a concern and, and a belief that our financial aid policies should serve to assist the educational attainment of those students who, but for that assistance, may not be able to achieve their own educational goals or accrue the attainment that our society needs them to. Okay. Um, 
Can you touch on the unmet need? I know that was uh, mentioned in your paper. Yeah, and that relates again to um, these um, the change in financial aid composition, as well as to those differences in um, admittance patterns that I talked. About. The mm -hmm. definition of unmet need is, um, and it's a common part of the financial aid landscape, is the difference between a student's education cost. So that means not just tuition, but fees, room and board, which tend to be more than half of the total cost of attendance, um, depending on where a student actually goes. Um, the difference between those education costs and available financial resources, including financial aid, as well as student and family contributions. Um, and it's unmet need um, that particularly um, can depress a student's educational attainment. Sticker prices can be scary. You know, a family gets the letter um, from the college and, you know, this is how much the tuition or it's in the, the catalog even or the brochures. This is how much tuition is. But there's a little asterisk usually that reassures people that financial aid is available and, you know, that that, that sticker price is not necessarily what students will pay. And actually relatively few students pay exactly that sticker price. Um, but unmet need is really kind of where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. It's when a family is sitting down together saying, are we really going to be able to make this happen or not? Um, and they look at what they're expected to pay and compare that to what they've got on hand, which is not only their own savings, but also what the student might be able to contribute um, and all of the financial aid that's been offered and oftentimes increasingly today confront a gap. Um, and again, some of it, practices within financial aid are increasing this. There was a really a fairly alarming, but I think useful study that was done a couple of years ago that looked at admissions directors and found that 10% of college admissions directors at four-year colleges and nearly 20% of those at private liberal arts colleges report that they give affluent students a significant leg up in the admissions process, meaning that they're admitting full-pay students with lower than other applicants, while other colleges and universities are deliberately offering other students financial aid packages that are underfunded in order to discourage them from enrolling. So they're able then to simultaneously tout a statistic that says that, you know, we offer X percent of our admitted students financial aid. Sure. But that financial aid is likely to be knowingly ins insufficient to facilitate actual enrollment. Um, so then the people who do end up enrolling and attending the school are those who have the financial resources to meet that tuition cost, which, again, is increasingly important in, as a part of the institution's overall operating budget. So it's a having your cake and eating it, too, from the perspective of institutions in the financial aid system. We can say that we're offering this aid, and yet the people who end up enrolling are those who are going to have the money to be able to pay the tuition bill. From the part of families, it it is one of the particularly tragic moments in the educational trajectory. You know, our kid has performed well enough to be accepted to this school, whether that is, you know, our state flagship public institution or a, you know, small school that we think is perfectly suited to his or her interest or a you know, really top tier institution that we'd always dreamed she would be able to go to. And then we sit down and really do the math. 
um, and confront this specter of unmet need and have to, even if we're willing to borrow considerably as a part of that package. And then we have to figure out do we not go there at all? Um, do we um, take out unsubsidized and therefore more expensive student loans outside of the um, federally regulated system? You know, do we borrow from other family members? Do we take out of our retirement funds? I mean, every choice at that point is a really costly uh, and inferior choice um, when you're facing unmet need and a student whose educational and career futures hinge on the achievement of advanced education. So yeah, a lot of students, it sounds like, are relying on borrowing because they have to. They have really no other choice. So do the larger loan amounts tend to have the same effects on the, on the borrowers as smaller loan amounts? So Great question. And it's one of the most interesting areas of student loan analysis right now. Again, there's been some really good research out lately that we've been drawing from and, and helping to contribute to. So the, the media coverage on the student debt crisis has tended to focus on extreme cases of these really large loan amounts, right? You know, student owes $200,000 in student debt or, um, you know, you, you've seen those headlines, too. But recent evidence suggests um, something that kind of sounds good, but is actually um, is actually bad. It's actually reason for concern, and that is that you know, most students don't owe nearly that much. That's the good news. The bad news is that debt burdens may actually be worse for borrowers with relatively small loans than for the relatively few who owe a ton. The reason is because those relatively small loans are often financed, are often used to finance educations that were never completed. So I had to borrow, but then I didn't make it all the way through, oftentimes because I didn't, I had unmet need, which is really um, strongly correlated with failure to complete an education. You know, I can kind of cobble it together for a few semesters, but ultimately I'm trying to work too much or I'm borrowing from a family member who isn't able to support me anymore or, you know, fill in the blanks. Um, so then that small loan amount may not be and may not have gotten me enough education to be able to earn enough to then be able to pay off that loan um, in uh, good form. Um, you know, there's also um, evidence that those really high loans, in contrast, are used to finance often really advanced degrees. Um, so yes, it is still a concern. We're still concerned if somebody has to borrow hundreds of thousands of dollars um, to complete an education education um, that then is, it, it prepares them for a career uh, that is really important to our society. I mean, I'm not trying to downplay the um, kind of extreme case of those really high dollar loans, but they are fairly uncommon. Um, and so that means that most of the problems that we see today with delinquency and default and financial strain and really just life challenges resulting from student loan debt are from the mo for the most part resulting from relatively smaller 
loan balances. Um, and this also casts doubt on some of the policy changes that have been enacted to try to soften the uh, blow of student loans. So for example, um, you know, there's been a lot of um, discussion of income-based repayment as kind of the silver bullet that, you know, we, by basing how much you pay in the future for your student loan on how much you're earning, we'll be able to ensure that these student loan burdens don't really harm um, students' um, financial position post-college. There are several problems with that. I mean, not the least of which is the fact that um, as you're diverting your income to repaying your loan, you're not building an asset base. So, you know, a dollar is a dollar. Uh, and anything that you're having to divert um, to that repayment, even if it's only a certain percentage of your income, is still going to compromise your financial standing post-college. But it's also a problem because most income-based repayment plans include loan forgiveness at the conclusion of the repayment period. The idea being, you know, if you're not earning enough to be able to pay off your entire loan at a certain percentage of your income, then after fill in the blank, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, there are various proposals, will forgive that remaining balance. However, most of the people who are benefiting from that loan forgiveness are people with really large student loans who probably didn't need the forgiveness as much as those whose loans are relatively smaller, but because they're smaller are mostly able to pay them off over that extended period, even though they're earning less. So it means that we've got to look in a different place um, for the metrics of how and why student debt is harmful to individuals' finances. We have to ask different questions about where that debt comes from, about how well student loans are or are not serving our educational and, and really national interest so that we can then come up with better policy solutions that will really address those underlying uh, causes. So are you seeing a difference when it comes to borrowing between low income versus high income families? Yes. So the first difference is just that low income students depend to a far greater extent on student loans to finance their prior educations than do students from high income families. Um, we did some analysis last year that found that for bachelor's degrees in particular, family economic status seems to be the strongest protective factor against reliance on student loans. When we get to talking about um, you know, master's degrees and professional degrees, um, then really all but the very highest income students are more likely to use loans at that point, um, which makes sense. But again, at that point, you're purchasing um, particular occupational advantages, which mean that often those students don't struggle as much um, to meet those debt um, repayments. So we tend to divide our conversation somewhat when we're talking about undergraduate student loans versus those for graduate degrees. So looking at bachelor students, 76% of low-income students and only 53% of high-income individuals with bachelor's degrees have student loans. Uh, so your 53% is still a fairly um, significant utilization of student debt. I think it's reflective of the fact that even higher-income households are not saving for college um, the way that we would hope and the way that some might think, uh, in part because there are um, you know, relatively inadequate incentives 
and structures and opportunities to facilitate um, making education saving a regular part of your financial life. I mean, you know, just as a quick example, um, very few employers offer automatic withholding as a part of their benefit package for higher education saving the way that they do for retirement. And even fewer employers do any sort of matching for higher education saving the way that they do for retirement. But but 70, that's still a 20, more than 20% gap um, in reliance on student loans that is different than what a lot of people think. Because I think the narrative around financial aid is that if you're really poor, there's a lot of money available to you. Um, to a large extent, that was never the case. Um, and it's certainly not the case with the shift toward merit-based aid that we talked about and with the decline in purchasing power um, of that financial aid. Um, but there's also some evidence that higher income students use student loans differently. So there's the, the actual just utilization rate um, and the significant gap there. Um, but they their different results from the experience of student borrowing suggest some differences in the quality of that experience too, not just the quantity. So higher income students may turn to student loans to finance a particularly selective institution. You know, my parents could help me pay to go to A, but I really want to go to B, so we're going to borrow some to be able to do that. To pursue an extended degree path, to reduce their need to work while they're in school. You know, I, I've got a little bit of unmet need here. I could work, but I really don't want to have to work because I want to participate in these extracurricular activities or I want to just, quote, enjoy my college experience, right? So we think those are relatively healthy ways to use student loans um, and often then um, relate to the um, comparatively less onerous experience of borrowing that those students have um, compared to those who have student debt as really their only viable way to to go to college um, in ways then that um, often um, relate to these um, concerning outcomes. And I think there too, we see that some of the policies that are put in place um, tend to exacerbate those differences. Higher income individuals are more likely to find ways to decrease their adjusted gross income with exemptions and deductions or other types of strategies that can then make some of those loan forgiveness or income-based repayment options um, more viable to them or be able to do things like, you know, participate in some of the loan forgiveness policies that different states have for um, taking on certain types of occupations or working in certain areas with the safety net that their families can often provide them to bridge, um, you know, whatever um, loss in income they may experience during that time. So looking at borrowing as a whole for all different income levels, what, what's happening to household balance sheets as a result of all this borrowing? So that's one of the things that we think is really interesting and um, relates to what I talked about earlier in terms of um, you know, asking the right questions about student loan debt and its effects. So up until this point, we've really only looked at higher education as like, or as at financial aid as, is it uh, helping someone meet the cost of college? Is it helping them pay for college at the point when they enroll? And if that's all we expect from our student, from our financial aid system, then student loans are fine, right? They're just as fine as anything else. 
We think, though, that that's not really what Americans want from their financial aid. They really want policies that facilitate meaningful, equitable access to educational opportunities for all students who have the orientation and ability to succeed educationally and then contribute to our society. And there we see significant differences between debt-based approaches and those that build on assets, in particular on family savings and on children's savings. So looking at balance sheets related to student loan borrowing, um, again, there's lots of different ways to slice this. And, um, you know, in thinking about these questions and preparing for this conversation, I could have given you, you know, 40 minutes just of different um, analyses um, that have really all emerged in the last couple of years. But I have just a couple of statistics that I pulled out that I think are um, fairly stark. So households with outstanding student debt, and this controls for education level, controls for age, controls for income. Households with outstanding student debt have 63% less net worth, 40% less home equity, and 52% less retirement savings than households without outstanding student loan debt. And really, that speaks to the um, limitations in financing higher education from debt, because it shouldn't be, that shouldn't be the case. Two people get the same degree, even at the same institution, they shouldn't have a 60% gap in how much they're worth. Um, they should be performing fairly comparably. What could possibly be driving that if we know that education is so significant in determining later financial outcomes? And, and it certainly is. We believe that it's really because that period in early adulthood is so critical for individuals to make some of those investments. They're choosing where they're going to work. They're getting enrolled in 401k plans. They're choosing where they're going to live. They're purchasing that first house. And individuals who are spending those critical formative years diverting so much of their income to repay debts that they accrued while they were in college are going to struggle throughout their working lives to catch up with those who were instead able to use that decade or so. And in fact, we're seeing repayment periods extend considerably and policies like income-based repayment propose to extend them even longer. Um, you know, we're now seeing some of our new analysis at ADI that'll be coming out soon is seeing that it's taking individuals longer to reach the median distribution of household income if they have student loan debt. I can't get into the right um, you know, position, so to speak, if I am dealing with so many um, of those debt obligations. And that relates to the second statistic that I think is really um, critical that came from some analysis by the Pew Charitable Trust that found that looking at Generation X. So we talked about a lot of those changes in financial aid and in college pricing happening in like the 1980s. So Generation X is the generation just before our, our millennial generation that's in college right now. Um, they found that for Generation Xers, high levels of student debt have resulted in wealth holdings that fail to keep place with their parents even though their incomes are greater than those of previous cohorts. They've labeled this the education paradox. The fact that I'm well-educated is, the fact that I am well-educated is actually reducing my wealth position, even though it is resulting in the increased earnings that you would expect. Wow, that that's something, the education paradox. Like, 
So I think we can all agree that whatever we can do to limit debt going forward would be wonderful. So let's talk for a minute about your study and the relationship between students whose parents had savings to pay for college and the likelihood of those students having to borrow. Yes, no, for sure. And there's a lot of the methods here that I won't go into in great detail. Um, certainly for folks who are interested, the paper um, as released by the St. Louis Federal Reserve Bank has a lot of details about the data source and the statistical modeling that we used. So um, I'm not sharing those, not because we're trying to hide them in any way, but just in the interest of time and um, comprehension. Um, it, sometimes those things are easier to understand written and, and staring at them, but certainly we'd be happy to answer folks' questions about our work. So um, I want to talk first about some of the description, just who, what we found in terms of who's got debt, and then get to um, the meat of um, how parent savings make a difference. So among these four-year college graduates, uh, and just the sample was looking at 3,000 students who graduated from a four-year college but didn't go to grad school, and they were about age 26 in 2012, um, so pretty recently. Among these graduates, 69% have student loan debt with an average debt of, of almost $24,000. So not the hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, but not nothing either. Uh, debt was higher among those who anticipated that financial aid would be important for selecting a college. So those that had some cost concerns um, predictably then ended up having to borrow more. Um, for those who applied for financial aid, also suggest they were experiencing some unmet need and trying to figure out how to bridge that gap. And those who attended other than a public institution, private schools tend to cost more, uh, even though we've seen in some cases more dramatic increases in public schools in recent years, um, given the decrease in um, state aid. We particularly found higher debt among those who went to for-profit schools. So that's a kind of separate part of the conversation. Um, but some concerns about really exorbitant prices there. About half of parents had put aside savings to pay for college. For those graduates whose parents had put aside savings, student debt outcomes were really considerably different. For example, these students had about $3,200 less student loan debt than those who didn't. Um, they were also less likely to have to borrow in the first place. Among the variables that we controlled for, and this is the you know kind of takeaway for folks, having parents with college savings was the only factor that reduced the odds of having high dollar debt. Um, so really, when you think about kind of all of the different things that you might encourage your child to do, different classes to take, different um, you know institutions to look at, those things certainly could be influential in determining outcomes and, and may even affect price a bit at the margins. Um, but I think really in terms of a an action item for individual families and then by extension for our public policy, the single best thing to do to reduce the likelihood that your child has to borrow heavily uh, to go to college is to save um, to help confront those costs. Um, so we then think, you know, immediately of the policy implications. Uh, if parental college savings are one of the few ways to reduce high dollar debt, but we know that parental savings are currently inadequate, not enough people are saving, and the people who are saving are often not saving enough, then we want to see more policy to facilitate and subsidize parental savings. Um, tax incentives to encourage college savings, particularly we're interested in looking at where tax incentives may need to be 
be refundable and at the timing of tax benefits too. Some of our tax benefits for education don't kick in until after you've had to pay the tuition bill, which makes them not all that useful to families that have a cash crunch. Um, but also really want to see improved access to workable savings vehicles. So, you know, an increase in employer payroll deduction, as I mentioned, um, improvements to 529 plans in ways that make them even friendlier uh, to parents, um, and, and really efforts that would look at saving for children very early a shift toward more asset-based approaches to financial aid. You know, can we take some of our existing financial aid programs um, that many times students don't find out about until they're at the point of enrollment now and instead uh, make them available as asset investments um, when children are very young so that they have time to grow, so that families can count on them, and so that we can activate this um, linkage in people's minds between education savings college affordability, and uh, academic success. So one other way I know that your team is promoting these ideas is through your new book that's coming out in June. Mm -hmm. Did you want to tell us about that? Yes, we love talking about that. <laughs> um, so um, we, Willie Elliott, uh, Dr. Elliott, who is the founder of the Center on Assets, Education, and Inclusion, uh, and the lead author, actually, on this paper that we were just talking about. Um, and I have written a book called The Real College Deck crisis. Uh, and it's really about making this case that our reliance on debt as the primary mechanism of financing higher education is not just hard on students um, in the immediate term, but really over the long term, it, threatening this American dream that we have, that the way that you get ahead is by working hard and being talented and um, investing in yourself. Um, that if we close off equitable access, to um, educational attainment that is still a kid's best chance at moving up the, econo the uh, economic ladder, um, then we are um, really making it increasingly difficult for a family to expect that they can work their own way up. Um, so the book talks about, kind of outlines the evidence of student debt's effects on Americans' education and financial outcomes a lot more um, about how students do post-college when they have to borrow or not, um, and looks at um, contrast those effects with the improved prospects associated with saving for college, um, parent savings and children's savings. Um, it calls for then a response of kind of honestly accounting for what's happening with our debt-dependent financial aid system and a shift um, to more assets um, and concludes with some public policy proposals um, that would extend college savings opportunities to every child in America that are adequately incentivized and progressively funded and delivered early enough uh, to affect not only how families so what children expect to be able to do in school and how they prepare for it. And we're really excited for the book to come out. We think that um, this is really a nation hungry for something new in college financing. You, know, you go to any cocktail party with parents who, uh, who have children anywhere within the academic pipeline and the talk quickly turns to the bleak future um, that they and their children are confronting for um, facing these rising college costs and, and debt burdens. 
Um, and we think that, you know, all of our fates, whether you have children or not, are tied up in how parents and children are um, going to be able to deal with um, the economics of higher education today. So we're eager for a conversation that we think others will be ready to have with us and uh, look forward to uh, getting the book out and to uh, continuing to think with folks about what difference it might make in changing how we pay for college. That's great. I mean, I, I agree. I think it's it's going to be a huge hit. I, for one, I, I'm sure I'll buy it and I'm excited to read it. Um, one last thing, if you can just tell the audience how they can contact you and where they can access the paper. Yeah, absolutely. So probably our website is the easiest initial portal. Certainly the paper is also available um, at the site of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. Um, so, And they have a great um, section on um, household balance sheets and um, family financial security. So it's worth uh, you know checking out their site, um, particularly if you have interest in that. Um, but our site is aedi.ku.edu. So it's um, the, now we've changed our name to the Center on Assets, Education and Inclusion, but we still kept the AEDI. Um, and that site has not only uh, a link to this paper, but to some of the media coverage of our work around assets and education. Um, some of our uh, initial research that's really driven the creation of children's savings account opportunities um, around the country that found that a family or child, excuse me, with college savings um, is about four to seven times more likely to attend and graduate from college than a child that doesn't have those college savings controlling for race and income and parental education level, really underscoring how important it is for families to not only save, but also tell their kids that they're saving for college and talk to them about what that means and why they're putting this money aside. Even if it's a really small amount of money, um, that research finds those educational effects at only about $500 in college savings. So all of that information is there on that site, um, as well as contact information for me, for the other faculty directors um, at the center, and for founder uh, Dr. Elliott. Uh, so we'd certainly be happy to talk with folks not only about this paper and its particular findings, but any uh, one of those buckets of our work. That's great. And we will be sure to include a link to your website on Saving for College as well. So once again, thank you so much, Melinda, for joining me. And that was um, that was wonderful. I mean, there's so much good data in there that supports our case. So, you know, we're definitely on the same page. And I will also keep our readers posted on the new book when it comes out. Fantastic. It's great to talk with you. Thank you for the um, really insightful questions. And uh, hopefully we'll cross paths soon.